I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put them in the midst of them, his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. The live, like livestock that go down to the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy, beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your, of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like, the, like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We shall all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have been have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So just to take a step back for a second, uh, we looked at in Isaiah 61 through 62, we ventured into the glories of the promises of God that await us. I don't know if you remember, but just incredible promises of God were brought forward to us. 
and we got to look at what awaits us in glory and the promises that belong to us. And that is really the reality that we should live in, shouldn't we? In light of the great uh, incomprehensible promises of God, we need to live in that reality of the hope that awaits us. And there's, there's hardly a better way to sum up chapters 61 through 62 than Isaiah 62 verse 1. Listen to these words and think about what it means, the implications for us believers. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. God is completely committed to the good of his people. And he is committed to finishing what he began. And the promises of God make life brilliant even in the darkness. But how is God going to get us here? Right? How is God going to bring us to these promises? How are we going to get to this place of complete righteousness where we will, we will live in the promises of God? While there are some necessary events that, might take, that must take place before we get there, God revealed that he will accomplish this reality through the act of judgment as a victorious warrior in chapter 63 verses 1 through 6. And I said that this is not, 63 verses 1 through 6 we said, was not detached from those glorious promises of God when we saw this mighty warrior coming in with his head held high, not tired at all, with blood stains all over his cloak, who had just gained victory for his people, and the watchman spots him, remember? And he says, this is the one we've been waiting for. I've been waiting for you. And so this is what must take place before the promises of God are fully received by his people and his kingdom. And so all of this was for our comfort and for our assurance. And so you might think, well, this is a great place for the book of Isaiah to end. What a great place for Isaiah to conclude this pretty lengthy book. Uh, this is like, we've heard everything and we've ended on the mountaintop. Isn't that exactly where he should end? But Isaiah does not end his book here. Isaiah doesn't want us to end here. He wants to bring us back down to the earth. He wants to us to bring us back down to the reality that we are in of this fallen world. And we enter back into, from this mountaintop, we go back down to the very bottom. And we approach this fallen world and in the, in the difficulties and the struggles and the problems that, are, that constitute our daily lives that we live in. We live in a fallen world. And we are feeling the effects of our sin every day. We are being reminded over and over again, we are not there yet. And as much as we might try to build our kingdoms on this earth, they will always fall apart. They can't be sustained. So what the prophet does here, the prophet Isaiah does here, is something that is very helpful for us. It's something that we need desperately the prophet gives us a much-needed example through his prayer of intercession for the people of God on how to pray in difficult times. He says basically, Lord, help us. 
We need you desperately. There is a great lack of desperation today in the church. There is a lack of faith. Faith cries out to God when in need and in trouble. Are we in need? Are we in trouble? Are there difficulties around us? Do we need God? And the answer is yes, we do desperately. And so the prophet gives us an example by calling, um, by, by, by calling down heaven, <laughs> by storming the, the heavens with his prayer. He is desperate for God. And he knows there is no hope without him. And he will do anything to lay hold of God. And he will not let go. And he offers reason after reason why God should hear and come to save his people. You know, in reality, this prayer is an example, which goes from 63 through 64, and we'll get halfway done today. This prayer is an example of how a watchman is to pray in Isaiah 62, verses 6 through 7. Let me read these words. And think about this as we look at this prayer. I want you to think about how this is a great example of what the watchman was called to do. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So here is an example of what the watchmen are to do. And we are to be those watchmen who give God no rest We are to be the remembrancers, if you remember, who constantly bring to God the reality of his promises, remind him of his promises, not that he forgets, but that that is our duty to come before him constantly and say, God, you promised. Fulfill your promises. Come and save us. We need to learn how to pray in difficult times. So if you're to pray Faithfully, during difficult times, you must beforehand commit to remembering God's loving kindnesses. Loving kindnesses, plural. (laughs) If we are to pray faithfully, we must commit today to remembering, constantly remembering the loving kindnesses of God. Isaiah the prophet, who is interceding for his people here, expresses his commitment to remembering God's loving kindnesses in verse 7. And he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And I want you to notice, if you were to continue on in this verse, that the prophet is gushing out praises to the Lord. He is gushing out, kind of like a fire hydrant, you know, um, when it just gushes out water. (laughs) And, and, and it's like this, this unstoppable force that is coming out of him. He is gushing forth the loving kindnesses of God. His grace, his goodness, his mercy, and his love. He knows that God has been kind, and God has been good, and God has been gracious and merciful. And even though he is committing himself to do this, he is not doing it grudgingly. He is doing this as something that he cannot hold back. He is doing this as something that he loves to do. And that's what a heart of faith loves to do. A heart of faith loves to remember and recount the loving kindness of God. We do this when we love and are amazed at something. 
And when we understand and know by faith the loving kindness of God, it will pour forth out of our mouths and we will not be able to hold it back. There's no greater force. There's no greater life-transforming force. No greater um, um, praise-compelling factor than when we understand the loving kindness of God. You can't hold it back. So where do you see God's loving kindness gushing out of him in these verses? Well, you see it in the fact that he is not referring to one loving kind act. Every time loving kindness is mentioned here, it's in the plural. Loving kindnesses, plural. God's loving kindnesses multiplied towards him. And so he's saying God has acted in many loving ways towards us. Multiple ways. You can also see God's loving kindness gushing out in the way he repeats himself. He is repeating himself here when he says, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted to them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He's like saying the same thing over and over again there. And that's how he emphasizes it. That's the exclamation mark. Saying the same thing, just slightly different words. He's saying God has been good. One of the reasons why we should be so committed to recounting God's loving kindnesses is because there is a connection between God's loving kindnesses and us praising him. And the connection is made by the prophet Isaiah. He interchanges the two words there as if they were virtually synonymous. Notice what it says in verses 7a. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. To recount God's loving kindness is one and the same as praising the Lord. It's synonymous with each other. When you're recounting God's kindness and loving grace, you are praising the Lord. And praising God is the chief business of every believer. If you are not praising God, if you're not recounting the loving kindness of God, then you are not doing what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Even if you're doing everything else imaginable, you are failing at what you are created to do. You are created to recount the loving kindness of God. You are created to praise God for his goodness. So where might one begin to recount the loving kindnesses of God? How about going back to God's electing love? The recounting of God's loving kindness begins at God choosing his people. And we see this in verse 8. Notice these words. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. I want you to to see in here the covenant language that is used. Notice he says here, surely they are my people. That language would have been understood to be associated with the covenants that God made with his people. That language was almost always used, you are my people and I am your God. So when we see those words, we should immediately think of the covenant relationship that God entered, that he chose to enter with his people. And he explains what God was thinking when he chose his people to be in covenant with him. What interesting words here. 
It says he was thinking, surely they will not deal falsely. Now, isn't that surprising? Doesn't it almost sound like God is naive? Right? Like he got a bad deal out of this. Almost as if he was thinking that something good would come out of this. But something bad came out of it. Like he got a lemon, right? He got a bad deal. Almost like he didn't know ahead of time what was going to happen. Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. But we know better, don't we? We know that God knows completely the sinfulness of man. He knows the end from the beginning. He is not surprised by anything. He makes no mistakes when he chooses. He knows the heart of man. I think that God is expressing simply the right expectation that any sane person in such a circumstance would have. He is expressing what is the right and reasonable expectation for anyone to whom is shown such love. They should be faithful. The right and lawful response to such outpouring love from God, multiple kindnesses from God, in such amazing ways, is faithfulness. That is simply what you expect. That is the right response, the proper response to such love. They should have been loyal to him. And it is right to expect it. Even if they couldn't have been because of their sinfulness, they should have been because it would have been the right response. Think with me. When God, out of kindness of heart, delivered his people through the sea and made a covenant with them, was it wrong for him to expect that they would obey him and be loyal to him? No. Not at all. He had every reason to expect faithfulness and covenant loyalty from the people he had shown such great love to. Has God chosen you? Are you thankful to him today? Do you see God's choosing, God's gracious and merciful choice as being a loving and gracious and kind act of God? Immeasurable love. Another aspect of God's love is his bearing with his people in their affliction. Not only did God lovingly choose them, but he also continually cares for them through their affliction. This is a God who doesn't just begin. He continually cares for his people. We see that in verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. What an amazing statement the intercessor makes here when he says God was afflicted in their affliction. Just think about that for a moment. God was afflicted when his people were afflicted. You know, you can't say about God that he is like the gods of the nations. God is not far removed from his people. God is near to his people. God is infinitely great. He is the other, but yet he enters into the affliction of his people. He is with them in their affliction. That is something that is incomprehensible. It's mysterious. He enters your affliction, people of God. 
He enters your pain. He knows your pain that you go through. Can this possibly be true? Can God possibly be afflicted when I am in affliction? Is this just a nice statement? Well, I want us to understand that we know this better than even those in Isaiah's day would have been able to understand. See, God has entered our affliction in the incarnation. Jesus literally was afflicted with us and for us. What Isaiah is talking about here became a reality when Christ entered our existence. When he entered our world. When he took on flesh and blood. He does not stand afar off. He literally enters our pain and our struggle. He might not take it away, but he experienced it. (laughs) He experienced it, and he's there with us, even in the midst of it. Isn't it amazing that almost anywhere in the Bible, you can go directly to Jesus? (laughs) And here we see Jesus being magnified as how God is with us in our pain and our suffering. He not only bore their affliction, but also saved them. And once again, noticed that the reference to this angel here is likely a reference to the pre-incarnate Savior. God saved them. God redeemed them. And it says here, it's the angel of his presence. The angel of his presence. And we understand what it means to be saved and redeemed even better through the cross of Jesus Christ. How he has come And on that cross, he has dealt a a death blow to our guilt and a death blow to our sin. Praise God for his amazing grace. The point here, as one man put it, is that God loves them from A to Z. God loved them completely. No lack of love here from God. He did not only choose them, he also bore with them and delivered them. Has God been with us in our difficulties? Has God cared for us and loved us? And, and you know, the life is not necessarily how, as that song goes, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. <laughs> That's not what it means necessarily. It's not necessarily even true. <laughs> but we can say at the end, that Jesus has been with us in our affliction and he has never left us. We might feel like he has and some days might be dark and difficult, but God is with us. He cares for us. And if he has chosen us, if he has begun a work, we can be confident that he will finish what he began. And that is the love of God that we should understand and comprehend. If we were to faithfully pray through our difficulties, we must make it a consistent habit of intentionally recounting the loving kindness of God. You see, we easily forget. We easily forget God's loving kindness. We have this problem with spiritual amnesia. (laughs) And when we remember God's loving kindness, when we remember his love for us, it stirs our faith within us. And it it causes us to, to walk in his path. In light of God's mercies, present yourself a living sacrifice to God. Isn't that what Romans 12 says? Romans 12, 1. So let us 
stir each other up, let us encourage our own hearts, and let us never think that people already know this thing. You know, one of the things that keeps us from reminding each other of things, I think we're a little embarrassed because we think they already know about the grace of God. They already know about the justification of Christ. They already know about the atonement. They already know about um, God's commitment and God's promises. But let us never assume that. And even if we do know it, we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. It is our problem when we think that people are going to be upset because they've heard it before. If someone ever comes to me and says, I've heard that before, I'll say, well, you need to hear it again. (laughs) You need to hear it again. We're not coming up with new things here. The old things over and over and over again. If you're to pray faithfully in difficult times, you must be aware of your fallen condition and take full responsibility for it. We see that in verse 10. So my question is, how do you know the measure of your depravity? How would you get a glimpse of the measure of your depravity? Well, you would look at your response to God's loving kindness towards you. We need to ask, therefore, how do God's people respond to God's loving kindness towards them? In verse 10, they respond in what way? (laughs) By rebelling against God. Notice this. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Do you see the greatness of our sin? Do you see the unreasonableness of our sin? In contrast to the loving kindness of God, we see the completeness of our depravity. You can't see it more clearly than what is presented to you here. The idea here is that against the backdrop of God's loving kindness, you can see the darkness of our sinfulness and depravity. We sometimes ask the most ridiculous questions, don't we? It is common to ask, how could you have done that? You know, when someone commits a sin that basically ruins their lives. And we say, you had everything going for you. What were you thinking? Why did you do that? As if there was some kind of reasonableness to sin. As if you could somehow reason it out or find some reason why we do what we do. How could you have done this? The very nature of sin makes no sense. And that's exactly what we see here, isn't it? God pouring out his loving kindness towards them. And they go on and rebel against him. It makes no sense. There's no reasoning about it. When I sin, when you sin, there's no reasoning to it. It is common for people to rebel when they are mistreated, isn't it? But who has ever heard of someone rebelling when they have been loved to the completest sense possible? This is the very description of insanity. It makes absolutely no sense. And the reason we don't often see our sinfulness is because we're ignorant of God's loving kindness towards us. Failure to see the greatness of our sin is directly related to our failure to see the greatness of God's love. And there's something very ugly about our sin here, isn't there? As we're looking at the ugliness and and the the greatness of our sin, the, the ugliness and greatness of our sin is brought out here. There's a relational aspect of our sin, isn't there? In that it grieves God. You see, sinning is not just like breaking the law, is it? Although it is that, it's very much breaking the law, 
right? Um, you go through a stop sign and there are consequences to it, right? Uh, you, you pull the wrong lever and a rock falls on your head, something like that, right? Right? There's a consequence. You do it and there's a consequence. But there's more to it. There's a relational consequence to it. There is a grieving of God that comes alongside our sin. And that helps us to see the ugliness of our sin. Right? And that's what Paul warned us against in Ephesians 4 verse 30. He said basically the same thing. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit of God is a person. He can be grieved. One being, three persons. That's just an additional point there I had to make. You can also see the greatness of our depravity and God's response to it. The greatness of the depravity is seen in the fact that God became their enemy. Notice the words, therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Just imagine God being your enemy. He was your enemy. <laughs> we were born into sin. Imagine God being your enemy. There is nothing worse than that. And that's an understatement. And what God does is always right. Therefore, God is perfectly right to do this. He was right to become their enemy. This was a just war by God. The perfectly righteous God always and only does what is right all the time. God was righteous in fighting against his people. God rightfully turned against them and fought against them. If you are to pray faithfully in difficult times, you must pray earnestly for God to intervene and to save you. In other words, you must not pray weak and timid prayers. Don't hold back. Rather, plead earnestly for God to intervene. The absence of such prayers is often the indication of the absence of faith. When I go through troubles and I don't cry out desperately for God, that is perhaps the greatest indication of the absence of faith in my life. We go through troubles intentionally so that we would magnify God as Savior by crying out to Him. So I ask you, do you cry out to God when you go through troubles? Is that the pattern of your life? Are you honoring God as God? And we see that in verses 11 through 14. You can almost hear the desperation in the interceding prayer of Isaiah for his people. He is experiencing the pain that they're going through. Notice from a prophetic point of view, right? Because he is prophesying ahead of time as if he was going through uh, the trials that the Israelites were going through. And he's experiencing their pain. And he's pleading for them. And you can hear the desperation in his words. God's special people are in a very difficult position. And so he looks to the future and feels the pain they're experiencing. And so we must ask ourselves when we hear this, is such prayers even appropriate? Are his prayers appropriate to pray like this to God? Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion, they're held back from us. You did all these things in the past, but where is your zeal? 
Where is your inner beings, the stirring of your heart towards us? I thought you loved us. You're acting like you don't care about us. That's what he says there. Is that proper? Is that right to pray like that? Well, such prayers are more than appropriate. Crying out to God like this in the midst of pain is an indication of the presence of genuine faith. It acknowledges God for who he is and us for who we are. It says, God, you are my Savior. And the absence of crying out like this and the difficulties we experience is the presence or is the absence of genuine faith. God is not honored by prayers that do not acknowledge the truth of who he is as our Savior. So we must ask, where then does such faith-filled, urgent pleading towards God come from? How do we become people with such earnest, faithful prayers? In verses 11 through 14, tell us. Such urgency in prayers comes from, a, the, the, comes from a knowledge of who God is based on, his, on recalling his past works. Such urgent, faithful prayers comes from knowing who God is based on his past works. The character of God is revealed to us based on how he has worked in the past. If we're to pray earnestly, we must remember the character of God based on what he has done. Notice how Isaiah recalls how God, what God has done in the past. How he has brought shepherds to deliver them from the Red Sea. How he brought the Holy Spirit into their midst and delivered them. Such past actions reveal to us God's present character. It reveals to us God's love for his people, his care and concern, even when we cannot see it and understand it. Despite the appearance of things, God's past works is the basis for understanding of God's character, that he actually cares. And such remembering fortifies our faith and, and enables us to cry out with urgency to God. That is why he is asking, you did it before, why not now? You saved us in the past, why not save us today? Where are your stirring of your inward parts? Look down and see our desperate condition. If you look down and see, I'm sure you will deliver us. I'm sure you will respond. Such urgency also comes from understanding um, the reason why God saves if we are to pray with such urgency, we must know why God saves. How many times have we not asked for things because we thought, I don't deserve it? We lacked urgency because we didn't think we had any right to pray for God to save us. He has no reason to save me, so I'm not going to cry out to him to save me. But Isaiah makes it clear our deserving is not the basis for why God saves. What motivates God to act? Why does he do this? Well, two times we are told in these verses. In verse 12b, it says, to make for himself an everlasting name. That's why God acts to save. In verse 14b, to make for yourself a glorious name. That's why God acts to save. This is what motivates God to make a name for himself. You can pray with boldness and urgency if you understand that God is motivated to act not because you deserve it, not because you're a, a particularly good person or had a particularly good day or particularly good devotions, but because he loves his namesake. 
And this enables us to pray with boldness in any circumstance, in any situation. God, save us for your name's sake. And God loves to answer that prayer. We can storm the heavens with our prayer. For your name's sake, Lord, save us. Imagine how we could pray if we understood this. And imagine how we would pray if we understood this. God's character and what motivates him should cause us to pray with urgency to God. Well, if you're to pray faithfully in difficult times, you must argue with God on the right basis. The basis that causes him to respond favorably. In other words, you must know how to argue with God, how to wrestle with God as Jacob did. On what basis should we appeal to him to intercede on our behalf and to save? Verses 16 through 19. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about that. On what basis should I pray? Why should I call out to God? How should I argue with God in prayer? Well, first of all, you should argue based on your relationship with God. You should plead with him based on your relationship with him as your father. If he is your father, he has obligated himself and his timing and his way to finally save you. And we're going to have to end with this one point here. (laughs) Um, And we'll make the next two points next week. But let me read verse 16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. What might it mean that Abraham, our father, does not acknowledge them? Well, it appears, you ever see someone who has a family resemblance to you? You know, it's like, obviously they're your son, right? They look just like you. You look like each other. Well, here, the the patriarchs would not have recognized them because of their sinfulness. They are so messed up because of their sin. They're unrecognizable. But he says this. Isn't this amazing? Almost contradictory to our thinking. But you are our father. You recognize us as your children, not because they were good, but because of their relationship with God. That is the basis by which we have claims upon God is only because we are in relationship with him, because he is our father. Otherwise, we have no basis for anything good from God if he is not your father. You have no right to call upon God for anything if he's not your father. But if he is your father, then he, you have every right to call upon him as your father. And he has obligated himself willingly because he loves to, to save you. Isaiah reminding us in his prayer that this is the only basis any of us have for ever being saved. It's having a relationship with God. He is committed to you. So Isaiah is pleading with God based on his relationship with him as his father to save. On Father's Day, how good is it to acknowledge that we have the true Father? You know, there's a lot of fathers out there, even good ones, but this is the true Father. This is the good Father. This is the one whom is the ultimate, supreme picture of what it means to be a father. The one that we strive to be something like with our lives. But here is the one that all of our eyes must turn to today. Let all the other fathers fade away and let the true father take central stage in our minds as we see the greatness of our father and rejoice in the fact 
that we have a basis, we have an argument to make for God to save us, and that is because he is our Father. When we pray like this, we are honoring him as God. We are acknowledging the truth of who he is, and he loves it when we pray and cry out to him as our Father. And only those who know him as their Father can make this claim, as I mentioned. How can you call on him as Father? Well, John 1 verse 12 tells us, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received him? Do you believe in his name? Those and only those alone are the right to call him Father. Maybe you are feeling right now more than usual the weight of the troubles of this world around you that we live in. We live in a fallen world. Some people call this the darkness of the soul. And sometimes we feel it more than others. It seems like God doesn't care. We wonder where the promises of God are. You can't seem to see him. And I don't mean to sound like Eeyore today. (laughs) But if you are not there today, you likely will be at some point. The good news is that even those like Isaiah who was in the very throne room of God have experienced such dark nights of the soul as we see here. Isn't that somewhat encouraging in a strange way? This is not entirely unusual. Thankfully, it is not all the time. Job said in Job 14 verse 1, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. But Isaiah's prayer here helps us to know how to pray during difficult times. We might not know how to pray. We might not know what to say. But Isaiah leads us and directs us and instructs us for how to do so. So commit yourself to remembering God's loving kindnesses right now. Make that a pattern of your life. Be aware of your fallen condition and take full responsibility for it. Don't hold back. Plead earnestly for God to save you. And know the basis for how to argue with God for why he should save you. He is your father. And next week we will learn he is completely sovereign. And thirdly, because you need him desperately. (laughs) Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are our Father. Lord, we say that word sometimes and we don't even think about the implications of what it means. I am guilty, Lord, of calling you Father, but not being amazed that I can call you Father. Lord, how can it be that people like us can call you Father? And the only reason is because of your grace in choosing us. The only reason is because of your mercy and your kindness that you first poured out on us. The only reason is because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. And so, God, we live in this very troubling world. But God, we know that you want us to call out to you as Father. And so, Lord, as a church, Lord, we delight, we rejoice to call on you as Father this morning. And we ask you, Lord, we ask you, God, to save us, fulfill your promises, bring us into your kingdom. God, enable us to keep the promises of God in our minds. Remind us of your loving kindness. Keep it at the forefront of our minds. And may we continually be bold and courageous in our proclamation of our great God and Savior. 
Lord, take away our fears. Lord, may we continually live our lives in light of the reality of who you are, even in the darkness of the difficulties that we experience. In Jesus' name, amen.